Our Father, we delight to meditate on the words of the songs that we've sung, our security in Christ, the certainty of our future because of the certainty and the revelation of your promise, even your determination to save a people for yourself through the work of Christ, the eternal Son incarnate, applied by the Spirit, secured by the Spirit, held fast and bound to your word by faith that you give and protect and sustain to obtain an inheritance which is eternal and perishable and unfading. Lord, what a delight it is to rest on the promises of God. And we pray that you would increase our understanding of these glories, of this grace, that we might increase in our obedience and our love for you. And Lord, we thank you for calling us not only to faith in Christ, but we thank you for this local body and this local assembly. We thank you for each member here. We thank you for the giftedness that you've given to each one for the building up of the body and love. And we thank you for the particular gift of those whom you have entrusted with the ministry of shepherding your people in the word. We thank you for particularly this morning your gift of Jason to us. And so as we open your word together and consider the office of eldership, as we recognize this ministry that you have entrusted to him, we ask that you would help us to glory in your work, in your grace, and be committed afresh as a body to continue to seek your face in prayer and to delight in your goodness to us. And we pray these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and be opening up your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, which is where we're going to direct most of our attention this morning. And was already mentioned, Jason, for those who are, were there, you already know this, obviously, but we did have an ordination examination, and that means Jason was put essentially in front of the firing squad, uh, in front of the congregation, and we asked him uh, questions based on a variety of different areas uh, in order to affirm his uh, giftedness and his being equipped for the ministry that God has called him to. As I noted, I think in the email there were three men. Tim was a part of this. Uh, and Pastor Jim Harrison, he came and preached several, uh, several weeks ago or months ago, and then of course myself. And we asked him questions in areas of theology, practical theology, and Bible knowledge. And it was the affirmation of all those involved that he demonstrated one that God has called to the ministry of eldership, and so it was with a delight to affirm that. Uh, together. And so that is a joy, and that is our joy, and again, an answer to many prayers. And so as we prepare to publicly affirm Jason to this uh, office of eldership, it's uh, helpful to take some time to consider the commission, God's commissioning of an elder, and what are the qualities that must be necessary uh, for one who would attain to that office. And so to do that, we're going to remind ourselves of Four features of eldership, and we'll look at these, of course, in more detail as we go, but it's the call to eldership, the character of an elder, which we'll spend most of our time on, the charge of an elder, what is his particular ministry, and the culpability of an elder, that is his accountability, particularly to the ministry that God has called him to and to the ministry of the word. But let me begin by first asking this question, just very briefly, what is an elder? An elder is, quite frankly, uh, simply an office of the New Testament church entrusted with the spiritual care of the congregation, the instruction and defense of sound doctrine, and leading the church in a manner that promotes spiritual maturity and faithfulness to the glory of God. That's essentially what an elder is. Now, if you were 
are curious about the origin of an elder, how an elder relates to Judaism and all of those things, we covered that in a bit more detail in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 in a three-part series. We're not going to address those things this morning. We're going to rather take a bird's-eye view, an overview of the qualities and the, the characteristics that, are, that must be evident in the life of one whom God has called to this particular ministry. And as I said, we'll look then at that very familiar passage uh, on this topic, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll consider these different uh, aspects of it. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. One who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach, into reproach and the snare of the devil. These are the most extensive, not the only, but instructions given to us by the Spirit of God in how we are to recognize and the qualities that must be seen in the commissioning of a man to the office of eldership. And so I want to begin with this first point, the call of an elder. The call of an elder. What do we mean by a call? Well, a call from a Christian perspective simply means this. It's a way to refer to that inner and providential working of God in an individual compelling them to a particular vocation or ministry in service of Christ. It's that work of God calling, providing for, leading and compelling a person to a particular service to Christ in his kingdom. This call consists of both an internal call and an external call. It has both a subjective and an objective aspect to it. The internal aspect is related to desire, what they experience within themselves. The external aspect is, re refers to those qualities that can be observed and evaluated by the church before that office and that ministry is confirmed upon them. So Paul begins in this passage then with the internal call. And he says, it is a trustworthy statement, simply identifying the importance of what he will say. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires. You see there, it is the aspiration and the desire of an individual to the work that God has called them to. And I want to note just three things about this call then. And again, we're going to go as briefly as we can. First is then that it's a good call. It's a good call. The desire to serve in the office of elder is itself a good desire when it's built upon the right motives. It has the right end. It has the right uh, objectives in, the, in wanting to fulfill that office. However, when he says here that it is a fine work or really a good work, it's in reference to the office itself, the work of the office itself, not the desire. But the desire for that office is good because the end at which it aims for and that it desires to attain is a good work. And because that is so, the desire to do that work is a good desire because the work is a good work. 
Now, this is important just as, as far as general context here for Timothy because there was a lot of danger. There were a lot of threats. There were a lot of difficulties that would have kept a man from this work, that would have kept a man from wanting to attain to this office. There were those who were taking this position to, in uh, teaching who were doing so out of ignorance and out of superficiality. He dealt with that in chapter 1, those who want to be teachers of the law, even though they're ignorant of the law. He's dealing with error that was coming in through supernatural warfare, the doctrine of demons he talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He's dealing with those who were in the office and had leadership but had made shipwreck of the faith, which he talks about in chapter 1, verse 20. He talks about those who were going into the ministry but were filled with greed and had all kinds of wrong and malicious motives in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And he goes on and adds to that list in 2 Timothy. In other words, it was a position that was fraught with hostility, potential hostility, dangers, and it was a call to a work. And Timothy wants to remind him that outside of all of those things, it is a good work. It is a good work, and it is therefore a good desire to attain to that work and attain to that office. But one must be prepared for it. And so he says here then, if anyone aspires, if anyone aspires, the idea of that term there is eagerly desire to accomplish some goal or purpose. I borrow that from a standard lexicon. A desire to accomplish some goal or purpose. So it is their desire to have imposed or have placed on them this office and this responsibility. The last thing you want in an elder is someone who is reluctant, hesitant, or doubting. Someone who is pushed into the ministry, but it is not coming from an internal desire for that particular ministry. If that is the case, then the man will ultimately fail in duty, will fail in courage, and will fail in stability. He will not last. It must come from something that is within the individual himself. The work is difficult, though also joyful. It's difficult and demanding not only with time, but internally with the burden of the accountability and the responsibility for the spiritual care and condition of the church. It's one that can be fraught with discouragement. It's one that Satan wants to put his attention, an individual, he's putting yourself in an office where Satan will put his attention on trying to discourage, trying to disqualify, trying to hinder them in the ministry that God has called them to. It's stepping up to the front line, as it were. The front line of spiritual battle. It is engaging in a task of which that individual knows they will be held to a greater accountability to God. And so that must come with the determination internally inside the individual to fulfill the office. But in that desire, it is a good desire. It is a good office. And it is a good work. And it is that goodness, it is that worthiness of the task that compels them to move forward in spite of all of these things. Now, secondly, then, I would note that it is a work of the Spirit. It is a call from the Spirit. This is to say that the qualities and calling of eldership are a product of the Spirit's ministry. It is the, it is the supernatural work of God within the individual calling them to this particular work. Let me just remind you of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Speaking of spiritual gifts, he says, But one and the same Spirit, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and verse 18. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. In verse 18, now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has desired. 
That, of course, goes to every part of the body as he gives that illustration in 1 Corinthians. Those not only who are mouths and eyes and so forth, but also those who are hands and feet. And you can just carry that on however far you want. But the idea is that the Spirit of God, according to the sovereign purposes of God, places each member of the body in the body where he desires to place them and where for the ministry he desires them to fulfill. And so it is in the ministry of eldership. We see that in Timothy's life as it was confirmed upon him through the laying on of hands, verse 14 in chapter 4. If you have it open, he says, speaking to Timothy, Paul does, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance and the laying on of hands by the presbyty. He says to him in Verse 6 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The point is, it is a gift of God. It is a working of God. It is a supernatural equipment by the Spirit of God to, to the ministry of eldership. And the desire and the goal of eldership then is is fostered, it's nourished within the man God calls to it. It is shaped and prepared. He is shaped and prepared by the work of the Spirit that is in, internally prompting and compelling them to attain to that good work. In short then, that means then, as the church considers these things, the church does not make elders. It is the Spirit who makes an elder and who gifts one for the office of eldership. An elder can be trained an elder can be molded, an elder can be shaped, an elder can be influenced and should be all of those things. But an elder is not made by men. It is a work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that equips and that shapes and preserves and all of those things that are required to attain to the office. That means that elders are recognized by displaying naturally un the natural and unforced demeanor and qualities manifested as evidence of the gift of eldership. It's the innate way the individual relates to the church and to the body. In other words, if somebody is not displaying these character qualities, if somebody is not displaying that giftedness, all of a sudden implanting them into the office of elder and giving them that title doesn't miraculously create those character qualities and giftedness. And that, in fact, it's a recipe for disaster. Because it's an unqualified person then who is forced into a role simply to fulfill the role whom the Spirit of God is not himself called to that role and equipped to that role. And so we, in recognizing an elder, you recognize somebody who is already displaying those qualities and those characteristics. It is a gifting of the Spirit. Thirdly about this call, just very briefly, it is also providential. It's providential. Paul's own life is an example of this providential work of God. And there's many other examples. But after noting in 2 Timothy chapter 1 the eternal purpose of God in calling him to faith in Christ and, and giving him faith to see the, the glory of Christ and to trust in him, he then says that he was appointed and called as a preacher and a teacher and as an apostle. He was appointed to that. He didn't seek it for himself. It was something that God in his sovereign work appointed him to. He expands on this, and I'm just going to mention it. Again, like I said, we're just doing a flyover here. But in Galatians 1, he does say this. It's this interesting account of that. He says, but when God, in verse 15 of Galatians 1, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
In other words, God's providential work in the life of the Apostle Paul, in the life of Timothy, and in the life of each person that he calls to that office of eldership did not begin merely with salvation, did not begin merely with his time in the church. It began from his womb, shaping him by his personality, by his life experiences, by his abilities, by the way that he works in his life to mold them to be the kind of man that is necessary to fulfill the office of eldership. Everything about the apostle's life, his education, where he was born, his parents, all of those things were a part of the shaping him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so that stands as a model for God's work and all that he calls to a ministry, and particularly the ministry of eldership. So it's the reality is that the work of God in preparing an elder encompasses the entirety of his life. That being said then, this is the call that is providential. It is a providential call. It is an internal call. And it is a call in which God is actively involved in compelling him to the ministry. But let's consider in most of our time here then, how do we recognize this call? So first of all, you would evaluate someone in terms of their desire. In terms of their desire. Many times as Jason and I were meeting over uh, these years The question was, is this what you want to do? He would discuss it with his wife. He would discuss it. uh, We would talk about it. It was prayer. And it was challenged at many times. As you know, it had to be uh, put on the shelf for a while, particularly when COVID came and work and a variety of other responsibilities. But one thing that remained consistent was the certainty that this was a work that he wanted to do, that this was a work that God had called him to, that this was a work that God was affirming in every part of his conviction and his desires and his aspirations in terms of ministry within the church. Secondly then, and really a priority then, is the character. What are the character, what is the character of the elder? What are the qualities that must be evident in an elder's life? And he moves on to that in chapter 2, really on down to verse 7. As noted, the desire to be an elder is something that is internal. But even if one has the desire and even has the gift of teaching or leading, that does not necessarily automatically make them qualified to be an elder. Somebody can have those things and yet still have a level of immaturity or defects of character that would disqualify them. Those abilities and those desires must be matched by a life that demonstrates a character of godliness and preparation by the Spirit of God. Now, I just want to note generally, each of these qualities are character qualities that are incumbent upon every Christian and every man of God. They are commands throughout Scripture reflected in, in them outside of the ability to teach that all men are called to be. It is what all men should aspire to be is to display these kind of characteristics. So to be an elder or to be a pastor or to be a missionary or any of those things is not to be a super Christian. It's not to have some kind of hyper super spirituality. Those who are called to that office have the same world, the same flesh and the same devil that everybody has to contend with. So it's not some kind of super spirituality that sometimes we want to uh, place on them. There's some special work of God that puts them on some higher plane. That's simply not the case. It is the case, however, that everybody who would attain to that office must demonstrate a certain level of obedience and submission to Christ. 
a certain level of the fruit of obedience to Christ in their life in such a way that they could be an example to the flock and in no way bring upon reproach upon the ministry that God has called them to. That's the idea. It's not the qualification is not perfection, but a degree of spiritual maturity and humility that can adorn their ministry of the word and again set an example to others. This is what Paul is constantly referring to in his own life, what he refers to, calls uh, Timothy to. We'll look at this later, but in verse 12, you're familiar with this. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Your life must reflect the priorities of your ministry and of following Christ so that you can lead others to the same. In light of this, elders then are to be tested and evaluated. That's part of the the reason for being grounded in these qualifications. They must be tested and evaluated before being put into office. If not, again, it can lead to disastrous consequences. He says in chapter 5, verse 22, before we look at these, Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and therefore thereby share for the sins of others and keep yourself free from sin. In other words, don't rush to it. Don't superficially evaluate that person. Don't have the wrong kind of criteria that would compel them to an office, again, that God has not called them to and that God has not prepared them for. One of the greatest tragedies in churches that hold to a a multiplicity of elders, yet who appoint men for all of the wrong reasons, who appoint them because of business success, because of length of time and family ties with the church, because of personality For a variety of reasons go down the list, but not because of spiritual maturity and giftedness. And again, that is a recipe for disaster. And so in the appointment of an elder, the church is to be circumspect, thoughtful, evaluative, to make sure that this is, in fact, the ministry that God has called them to. And what is then the criteria for an elder? Well, he says in verse 2, an overseer... And just as a footnote here, these these terms are interchangeable, as as many of you remember in Scripture. So overseer, episkopos, or elder, presbyteros, or shepherd and pastor, and all of those things are interchangeable terms. It speaks more of the function that they serve. So then here he says, an overseer then must be above reproach. The very first thing is he must be above reproach. The idea of this term is... According again from a standard lexicon, pertaining to what cannot be criticized, or another not apprehended, not that something someone that cannot be laid hold of, hence that he cannot be reprehended, not open to censure, or irreproachable. In short, it is to be above reproach. It is to be above reproach. That means then simply that there should be no part of an elder's life that diminishes or disqualifies him from teaching any part of Scripture. I think that's the simplest way to think of it. That there would be nothing in that individual's life that would hinder them from coming to any part of Scripture where others will look at them and say, and you're telling me that? When your life is not matching that? At least showing the pursuit of that? It means then that they should be above reproach and be able to teach any part of Scripture with a clear conscience. Now, it's probably best to see this then as an essential qualification with the others just simply being descriptions of filling out the meeting. So above reproach really stands as a title over all of these others. What does above reproach look like? And then that's what he's going to explain. And so what is the very first thing that he deals with? And the fact that it's first emphasizes its importance. 
The elder then must be above reproach, which is to say first that he must be the husband of one wife or a one woman man. Now this means first of all that, or first of all what this does not mean, I should say, it's not a a call that's designed to forsake polygamy. Polygamy was not an issue in the Ephesian church where Timothy was, where he's writing to. It's debatable how much it even was at that time an issue within Judaism. We do see examples of that in the Old Testament uh, clearly. But that's not the issue. He's not here addressing the issue of polygamy and saying, hey, get rid of your, your multiple wives or your concubines. He's not saying that. He's not forbidding a man to be remarried, which is how some want to take that and say that even if a spouse dies and he's remarried, he's disqualified, or if he was divorced or had any of that in his past before becoming a believer, that they're disqualified. He's not addressing that issue either. And it's not a requirement for marriage either, saying that in order to be an elder, one must be, must, must be married. That doesn't mean that any more than by the plural, his children must be under control, is saying that the elder must have multiple children in order to be an elder. Besides the fact that Paul himself would be disqualified, we don't know about Timothy's marital status and others, He also, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, argues for a higher state of ability to minister if someone is single. So he's not talking about that, that you have to be married. What then does it mean? He means here that a man who is called to the office must demonstrate marital integrity and faithfulness to his wife. He must be a one-woman man. It means that in his marriage, he must demonstrate complete fidelity to his wife. The elder who is married must have unquestioned character. When anybody looks at him, they see that he is a man devoted to his wife. He must be one who is intoxicated with her love alone. He is a man that loves her with sacrificial and sanctifying love that is displayed by Christ to his church. He must be completely committed to his wife in an unquestioning way, that it is clear to all around him that he desires only her affection, only her attention, and only her nearness. He should communicate that his wife is the greatest earthly treasure in terms of close relationship, that he delights in her company, values her wisdom, and honors her as a person in her role as helper to him. He's a one-woman man. He displays consistency and faithfulness in the covenant of marriage in an unquestioned way. In fact, this is so important, the two most common threats to ministry, and certainly um, Tim would remember this going through seminary, I'm sure, and a lot of guys, in my experience. The two greatest threats that you're constantly warned against are this. You can imagine them. Women and money. Sex and greed. If you look through the history of the Christian church, and the, it's littered with failure in those two areas primarily. There are other areas of failure, but those easily rise to the top. That must mean, then... That the elder can have no question, he must live in such a way that there would be no question in the mind of the congregation of sexual impropriety. But a sense of, again, holiness and dedication to sexual integrity. He must have a life and conduct in this area that if he were ever accused of sexual sin, the first thought in the mind of those who know him of the congregation, in the congregation would be, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. That is exactly the opposite of everything that I know about that person. You would have to have infallible proof to even convince me that that's a possibility. They must live their life in that way. They must live their life with that kind of integrity and being above reproach. One said he must be a man then of unquestioned morality. So a husband of one wife. 
He must then be temperate, temperate. This term has the sense of being very moderate in the drinking of an alcoholic beverage or being restrained in conduct. It's probably better to have the, the, take the second sense of the term here because he's going to address with drinking wine uh, afterwards. So it has the idea here, most likely, of being restrained in conduct or as it's translated in the NASB as being temperate. One person describes it in this way. It's such a person lives deeply. His pleasures are not primarily those of the senses, but of the soul. He's not given to emotional whims and fits of passion. He's not easily given over to the impulse of the flesh, but he shows a life of temperance, of spirituality, of living in light of deeper truths than just what is observed. In other words, in faith in the gospel. He must also be prudent. That has the idea of being sensible and moderate in behavior, and there is some overlap here. And this has the idea primarily that an elder must not be given over to emotional winds, getting caught up in the moment, or easily pliable to the impulses of the flesh. They demonstrate then appropriate behavior in all circumstances. There's not a silliness or a foolishness about the elder. There is a sense that their life shows that they take seriously the importance of of godliness. He says next then that he must be prudent, a husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, I mean next is respectable. He must be respectable. Now this is an interesting term. It has the idea, one describes it in this way, qualities that evoke admiration or delight, an expression of high regard for persons. The elder then must conduct himself in such a way that his demeanor, this is it, does not trivialize the gospel. It's not a trivial, superficial life. His demeanor must be one that demands respect, that gives the words of the gospel and that he shares a certain kind of weight. And I would suggest to you, as I think many in here would agree, that this is a quality that's lacking in many popular preachers, in which silliness seems to be the banner over their life, and trivialization of the gospel, not a sobriety and a reverence and a respect. I would say those men are then disqualified from the ministry that they're assuming upon themselves. An elder then must be respectable. Now this does not mean that he's dour and lacks a sense of humor by any means, but that he's not marked again by superficiality, triviality, or just frivolous behavior. He must also then be hospitable. Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, and hospitable. As you might have heard, this means literally the term, a love of strangers. It means simply that he is one who's comfortable and able to relate to people in general. He shouldn't be awkward and socially awkward and hard to approach and difficult to speak to and difficult to have a conversation with. He should be easily approachable, ready to spend time with individuals, and has a sincere care and interest in people should be the evidence of his life. It also suggests an eagerness to invite people in to their life, into their home, into their fellowship. The elder's home then should be a place of ministry. One who is displaying those qualities then is one who is naturally involved in the life of people, who naturally has his home open to others, who people feel very comfortable invited in to be in their presence and to engage them in conversation and questions. Not There should not be an austere sort of sense about their personality. So they should be hospitable. They should then also be able to teach. Now this is listed among the character qualities, certainly because the ability to teach effectively is going to be matched with holiness of life and, and so forth. 
But here, the ability to teach is the qualification that sets, as many of you know, the office of eldership off from that of a deacon. There's many parallels in terms of the character qualifications, but it is the ability to teach that marks that particular role of overseeing and shepherd and leading, something we'll mention uh, a little bit later. The basic idea of the ability to teach is simply this, that they have the ability to communicate and apply Scripture effectively to others. That's the idea, that they can communicate and apply Scripture effectively to, uh, to others. It doesn't mean that every elder is called to preach, but that he must be able to handle Scripture competently and effectively. The particular role of any one elder can have a variety of different flavors. Some can have an emphasis on counseling, some on discipleship, some on uh, teaching in, a, in different settings, others on leadership because of the ability to understand the word and wisely apply it and, and assess correctly situations that come up before them. So there's a variety of ways that this is manifest, but the main idea is that they must know and communicate scripture with effectiveness and competency. We'll come back to that later. He then says he must be able to teach and he must be not addicted to wine. He must not be addicted to wine, or some translation have not a drunkard. Now this says nothing about abstinence. As we well know, just in this epistle itself, Paul has to tell Timothy, who was because of some of the error of the false teachers and the licentious lives of those who were claiming to be representatives of God, who had gone to the other side and abstained. And Paul said, no, don't abstain. Take a little wine for your stomach and so forth. In other words, the idea here is not abstinence, but really the key idea is that of self-control. Self-control and propriety. The central idea here, then, is that the elder must have self-control in his character and habits, not enslaved to anything, to any pleasure, even to any hobby. He must be in control of his appetites, show orderliness and restraint in his life, not enslaved to anything that would disqualify him or hinder him in his ministry to the saints. His life must be ordered then in a manner consistent with the priorities of the ministry and the office to which he has been called to. That's part of the main idea. He must also not be pugnacious, not addicted to wine and not pugnacious. As the idea here has someone who is eager to fight or contentious. Uh, one lexicon gives this definition, a bully or a violent person. The big idea here is that he must not be self-willed and aggressive, ready, ready to roll over and confront and squash anybody who stands in their way, who is essentially a bully and who wants to bully their way through all of their own plans and their own desires and their own ideas. Uh, those who have that personality uh, are not fit for the office of eldership. He then gives a strong contrast to those things. Not addicted to wine, pugnacious, but, and he uses a term here that is uh, emphasizing the, the strength and the depth of this contrast. But they must be gentle, peaceable, and free from the love of money. Gentle, one describes as gracious and forbearing. They must display the wisdom overall and the, the effect of their life that's commended in James chapter 3. I'm just going to mention it. I'm not going to read it. Who among you is wise and understanding? Well, it should be the elders of the church. Let him show by his good behavior and deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Opposite of jealousy and selfish ambition and disorder. That means then that this wisdom is pure, peaceable, 
gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is in righteousness, in righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This sin should be the character quality of an elder, the overall tenure of their life. That they are gentle, gracious, forbearing. And then he says, peaceable. That means there must be a lack of conflict and contention in their life. Their character and manner of interacting with people should have the general tenor of producing peace among the body, reconciliation in conflict, and relational tranquility. If you'll remember that Paul says the, the goal of their instruction in 1 Timothy 1.5 should be love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. And that should be what is evident then in an elder's life. They should have the, the quality of being able to produce peace and a peaceableness because of the effect that they have on those around them. He says then also that they must be free from the love of money. The second of the two great pitfalls in ministry. That women and money and money greed. And that is the idea here. It is the absence of greed. An absence of greed as the motivation of ministry. And again, this was especially important because this was a common characteristic of false teachers. Jason read some of it this morning out of 2 Peter chapter 2. It's throughout the pastorals and scripture that greed, and certainly the false prophets in the Old Testament, greed seeing ministry only as a means of gain, as a means of developing one's own personal advancement and interest. Now, this is not a statement about how much money an elder can have, but their attitude towards money. You'll remember what Paul says later in this epistle. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and marry many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So what is the opposite then? What is the character quality that must be displayed? And that is that the elder displays a contentment in life, a contentment with their situation. It is no, no, nothing against wanting more. It is having that wanting more being a ruling motive of why they do anything that they do. They should be content with God's providence in their life and God's provision, which sometimes will be in abundance, as Paul said in Philippians 4, and sometimes will be a struggle. But in every case, they should show contentment in whatever God's will for their life is, that they should be pursuing that. And so they are not then to be a lover of money. He then says that they should be those who manage, one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Quite simply, an elder's ability to manage his house well reflects his ability to manage the church and lead, as he says uh, later, the household of God in verse 15 of chapter 3. It is the household of God, and so there is a parallel. And so an elder who has children who are disorderly, who are rebellious, whose home is in chaos, whose finances are a shamble, is not one who demonstrates the ability then to lead within the household of God. And interestingly, this is often a character quality uh, that's ignored in evaluation when churches call elders. Uh, that always is not, often is something that's not adequately considered. But it is important, here he dedicates two verses to it, that he must be one who manages his household well. That means that their children 
are not marked by consistent patterns of disrespectfulness, willfulness, or uncontrolled behavior. Now, just for time's sake, we're not going to go long on it, but I do want to make mention that uh, Paul addresses this issue as well with Titus in Titus 1.6, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, just to make a note on that, because it no doubt is in the mind of many of you, what does he mean? Is he saying then that an elder's children must be Christians? They must be regenerate, born-again believers who have demonstration of sovereignly gifted, repentant faith. Is that what he's saying in Titus 1.6? Some say that, uh, but I would suggest to you that that is not what he means for several reasons. One, it places undue weight on the term there. You might be familiar with it, pistos, faith. It also has the idea of faithfulness. And though he does use the term in uh, Titus referring to saving faith, that does not necessitate the way that he uses it in verse 1-6. Secondly, Paul defines what he means in the following statement in Titus 1.6 when he says, What does it mean to say they must have children who believe? That is not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, they must not be out of control and they must not be resistant to the authority of their father if they are in the house. There must be a sense of decorum in the house, not open defiance of the father's authority. Three, the parallel passage, which is here in Timothy, makes clear that the requirement is centered on the father's rule within the home. It is the father who manages his own household well. That is the requirement, keeping his children under control. That is the children's response to their father's role as head of the household is the primary issue, not the salvation of the children. A fourth is that it leaves vague the age of the child. Would that be to say that a five-year-old child must be regenerate, or an eight-year-old child must be regenerate, or a 16-year-old child must be regenerate, or somewhere in between there, or they're not able to be an elder until all of their children are older and are regenerate? In other words, it provides a situation that would be uh, untenable and not really uh, make sense. You could say, fifthly, that it undermines the sovereignty of God in salvation, And six, its absolutism would be untenable with common sense. What if an elder had nine to uh, ten children and nine of them were saved and one of them wasn't? Would he be disqualified as an elder? Would he display the inability to lead his family to Christ? And you could just multiply those kind of examples over. Let me give one last reason why I think it doesn't mean that. It eliminates the possibility of someone who was saved later in life after having raised children who were raised as unbelievers from ever being qualified to the office of elder. If they were saved later and gifted and demonstrated after salvation the ability to lead well whoever was in his household. So what does he mean here? He means here then that the elder must display in in his life, if he is married and if he has children, the ability to keep order in his home. The ability to lead ultimately, to lead his children to Christ if God would do that. But that he must demonstrate in his home That he is one that elicits out of his children respect and honor and obedience. As he says here, with all dignity. He then gives another qualification. That he must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. And this highlights the essential quality of humility and spiritual experience. He says he must not be a new convert. The idea of that term is really newly planted. Newly planted. 
He's not giving here a definite age or amount of time one must be saved. But he is saying that their salvation experience, their maturity as a believer, their experience in terms of their time in Christ after regeneration, after salvation, must be sufficient for them to be proven in their character. It must be sufficient for them to have gained a certain amount of sanctified wisdom that can help shepherd the church. And it must be a certain amount of time for them to have experienced the work of God in their life to be humbled. To be humbled. That's the idea. It would certainly mean that he needs to have been a believer long enough then, as noted, that their life can be evaluated, that they could have experienced in their own life enough of the struggles of wrestling against sin and the flesh and the world and devil, enough of the challenges that Christians face in life and ministry in order to gain wisdom and perspective. It can't be a new convert. That is dangerous to too quickly put someone into the office of eldership. And he says, the danger is that they will fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That is the condemnation that came to the devil because of his own sin of pride. One of God's chief goals in the life of his children is to produce humility. And again, the elder needs to have been a believer long enough to have experienced that work of God. To have wrestled with the effects of sin, not only in their own life, but in the life of others. To have gained wisdom, again, in perspective. Now, let me just make another quick note here, because it is so important. This issue of humility. I would note here that humility is the key to any successful ministry, especially the office of elder. Pride is the death knoll of ministry. And particularly when you have a multiplicity of elders. Pride kills effective ministry and it kills joy not only in the ministry but also that seeps down into the church and let me just note very quickly here two things two areas of pride that can come with the office of eldership that is one a love to be followed a love to be followed first corinthians 3 talks about how factions had developed within the church i am of paul i am of apollos i am of christ and that can happen within any kind of ministry and the one who is called the office elder, who loves that particular attention, who loves the fact that they are singled out by others as the key teacher, as the special one, as the one whom they are alone giving their attention to, can be a temptation to pride. What cannot happen in the ministry of a multiplicity of elders is this. There cannot be a my ministry mentality. There cannot be a my ministry mentality. A my ministry mentality that means this is my own little thing that I have in the church, and yeah, I'm willing to work along with others. That I, there cannot be a sense of my own goals, my own sense of uh, recognition or adoration, my own preoccupations with myself and the effects of my ministry. There cannot be a my ministry mentality. That will lead only to jealousy, selfish ambition, anxiety, and potentially factions within the church. And so there's no place for it. It also kills effective joy, effectively kills joy. A second part then, and this goes together, is there cannot be then in this, this call to humility a love to be first. Second John 9 speaks of Diotrephes, and he's described in this way, who loves to be first among them. Who loves to be first. 
The one who is jealous if good comes from the hand of another, who is threatened by every spiritual blessing and success of his felder elder, is not qualified for that ministry. There needs to be then humility. God's design of multiple elders is grounded in this, a shared commitment and desire to the spiritual health and growth of the body. A shared commitment, a teamwork, a working together, a together pursuing the same goal of the health of the same body in a way that is supportive, that a way that is in harmony, in a way that actually rejoices in the way that God may work through each individual elder. This is the attitude, again, displayed in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Let me just read it to you. Paul, what, did he, what was his response to those who would want to line up against him or line up against the, of, under Apollos? He says this, What then is Apollos, in verse 5? What is Paul? Servants whom you be, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Again, spiritual leadership then cannot be built upon individual ambition or sense of independence in ministry and personal goals. Humility then among the body, particularly among the elders, should be demonstrated by rejoice in the success of another because the real motivation is the spiritual good of the body to the glory of Christ. That must be the demonstrable, observable, outward, consistent display then among the leaders of the church. A delight in one another because of a delight, a common delight in the work of God in the body. I'm thinking just briefly of, well, an example of Edwards. When you remember Jonathan Edwards, an instrument in the, in the Great Awakening here. And uh, George Whitfield came and preached at his church. And there was a great effect of Whitfield's ministry in the colonies, but particularly also in Edwards' church, who had invited him to come. And it is reported that Edwards was on the front row re- weeping. Weeping as he saw the effect of the man's ministry. He was even also younger than Edwards himself was. Because he was so delighted in the effect that it had on his congregation. And this reawakening, this revigoration of their spiritual affection. His wife, actually Sarah Edwards, had a similar experience when Edwards was out of town, her husband. And there was this other evangelist who was coming in. And she recounts in her journals how she had a spirit of jealousy afraid that this man might come in and have a greater effect than her husband had had. And so she had confessed that to the Lord and wrestled with it and ended up, by the work of God in her heart, becoming a key instrument in the success of that man's ministry. And there was a great effect to it. That must be the kind of character that is displayed then among God's leaders within the eldership and the leadership of the church. Again, there's no place for self and the advancement and preoccupation with self in Christian ministry. The power is God's, the message is God's, the work is God's, and the glory is God's in Christ, period. And so finally here, then, he says this. He says he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That means simply this, that he must have a reputation in the world of integrity and a life that matches his profession of faith in Christ. To not have this makes him liable, then, he says, to the snare of the devil. What is this snare? It could be his ability to bring reproach upon the individual and discredit the gospel, 
or it could be the temptation to pride to that individual particularly and how they open themselves up to the, the temptations of greed, immorality, or some other sin that would compromise his standing in ministry. In either case, the primary point is this. The elder must have a life cons- that consists of spiritual integrity and godliness inside and outside of the church and the home. He can't be one thing in the church and another thing in the workplace. He can't be one thing in the church and another thing in his home. One thing in the church in one state, but different when he's out of state and somewhere else. It means their life shows a wholeness to it, an integrity to it, a completeness to it in their walk with Christ and in their faithfulness to Christ. Now, very briefly, I want to, before we uh, wrap this up, and of course I had way too many notes. But here, I want to emphasize this point, the charge of the elder. And again, I'm going to do very, very briefly here. The charge of the elder. What then is the charge? So that's the the call of the elder, the character of the elder, and the charge of the elder. And the charge of the elder is, again, captured in that one gifted, that that mention of giftedness, and that is at the end of verse 2, that he is able to teach, that he's able to teach. This highlights the central and foundational charge of the elder's office. It is a ministry grounded in Scripture. It is, first of all, a ministry of the Word. The primary responsibility of the elder, then, is to teach, defend, and exhort in sound doctrine. That's the primary responsibility. Why did we go through that whole process of examination yesterday? What was the point of that? Because there is in the office of elder the need to have some level of doctrinal proficiency doctrinal discernment, and an ability to understand and handle the word correctly. There has to be some level of that, uh, because that is the the hallmark of their ministry. They must be able to teach. They must be able to teach. They must be able to defend sound doctrine, and they must be able to exhort. Again, let me, for time's sake, just give this one passage. Uh, These are brought together in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. They must be those who hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. They must be those, as he would say later in 2 Timothy, who handle the word accurately, not being ashamed, but handling the word accurately, that they might accurately teach God's word, accurately defend God's word, accurately apply God's word to God's people for the spiritual good and growth of the church and of the body of Christ. It is important because he also describes the church in 1 Timothy as the pillar and the support of the truth. The gospel is the word of truth, the church is the pillar and the support of truth, and the elder is one of the chief assign or the elder is given the chief assignment of protecting that. It is the word of God by which men are saved, it is the word of God by which we are sanctified, and it is the word of God that protects from error that is constantly assaulting the people of God. And the elder is called to the ministry to be a protector, to be a nourisher in the word, to be a defender of it, to be one who has a life that can also charge others in their faithfulness to Christ and call them to faithfulness in Christ. It also means then that they have a ministry to the saints. That means their ministry to the saints is in leading. It's in leading. Now again, for time's sake, I'm just going to mention this. 1 Peter 5, Hebrews 13 talks about those who lead you. An elder is called to lead the church. If Timothy himself was called to appoint elders, to set an example, to carry out apostolic instructions. He tells Titus, Paul does, in Titus chapter 2, 
verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. In other words, you are called to a ministry of the word and leading in the word. In short, that means this, that the leadership of an elder, it means they are to set and advance the direction of the church in a manner consistent with scripture and in a manner that leads to a greater knowledge of the word of God and greater obedience to Christ out of love for him. That's overall what they are called to do in their leadership. It means they have a responsibility to set the tone of worship, to influence the direction of the church's ministry, and to establish the doctrinal foundation of the local assembly. They are also called in their ministry of the saints to shepherd the people of God spiritually, having a unique care for their souls. And this I just mentioned in heading the culpability of the elder. They are held accountable. They're held accountable by God, Hebrews 13, as those who will give an account for your souls, he says, and they are held accountable by the body themselves. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he gives instructions, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful. The elder is also accountable to you, me, Jason, and whoever else God raises up next and be praying for that. We are accountable if there, is, if there is unrepentant sin and continual sin and we are disqualified from the ministry. If there is error that denies the gospel, we are accountable also to the body of Christ for that to be called out. And we're ultimately held accountable to the word of God. So the authority of an elder, while the office has an authority and responsibility of leadership, it's not a personal authority. It's Christ's church. It's Christ's word. It's Christ's glory. The authority is completely founded in one thing, this and faithfulness to the word of God. That is the authority, that is the mission, and that is the accountability of every elder, and that is the charge to be faithful to it. And so in that, I know it was, uh, well, I felt it was brief. <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> but that, that is an overview of the qualities, and those are the things that we have seen and observed in Jason. We left that open uh, when we first started this uh, whole process. And uh, for anybody who has any kind of question on any of these issues, and of course there has only been, in this time that has passed, affirmation. An affirmation by the body of Christ. And that is the greatest encouragement to the ministry that God has called him to. So as a part of a closing, uh, closing prayer, I just want to ask Jason to come on up, if he would. It has been a joy and a blessing as we've met over these years, uh, as was mentioned yesterday, to see not only the, the faithfulness of Jason's life, but to see his insight into scripture, to see his habits of discipline to continue to study and to grow in the word of God, to see the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of his ministry in the lives of others as he counsels and as he disciples, to see his home, as you know, open to many, which is always filled and always has a Christ-centeredness to it, to see the humility that's evidenced in his life, that there's not a self-will and a personal advancement, but a desire for the spiritual good of the church. And I know that you've seen those things in his life, and I attest to that in the time that we spent together as something that is consistent. And it was with joy then, even seen by Jim when he came in from the outside. Uh, Tim, of course, uh, has been here long enough to observe that himself. Uh, that that is evident in your life, and it is... Uh, for that reason that we can consider it joy 
that you are God's answer to prayer. Hopefully the first of many answers. The multiplicity of elders, as we said yesterday, one or two is better than one, but really three, four, or five would be what we would ask. And so continue to pray and take encouragement in the provision of uh, God's provision of Jason that he will also provide others to our number as time goes on. But it is with joy, it is with gratitude and thankfulness, and it is with much personal appreciation and anticipation for our ministry together um, that it is an honor to recognize officially Jason as an elder of Newtown Bible Church. <laughs> that we serve.